Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 10, verse 26 through 42. That's Matthew chapter 10, verse 26 through 42. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Um, It's good to be here. Would you join me as we continue to worship as we pray? Living God, would you help us to hear your holy word that we may truly understand? And that understanding we may believe and believing that we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor, your glory, in all that we do. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Last week, Pastor Eugene ended um, the sermon uh, with what it means to imitate Christ um, with a title reminding us how Jesus sent the 12 disciples um, in the first half of the first 15 verses of the chapter we're introduced with 12 disciples who have committed themselves to following Jesus we see their names And these are the ones who say Christ is their king. And they've given up. They've given up their careers, their families, their lifestyle, their homes, their self-determination to follow Jesus, submitting themselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And Jesus knew the kind of challenges, persecution that his disciples would face So he warns them, he prepares them, he teaches them. 
any kind of misunderstanding, wrong expectations that they may have, he guides to correct. Some of the disciples perhaps thought the kingdom of God would come really quickly or that the Israel in mass would turn to Jesus, that they would embrace the gospel or that perhaps the enemies would be driven out. But Jesus taught them, warned them that this is not necessarily going to happen, at least not that way. And when they don't happen that way, don't think that Jesus' mission has failed, but actually it's a fulfilling, fulfillment of the very thing that he was teaching. Pastor Eugene reminded us last week that Jesus' disciples, true disciples, find contentment in being like the teacher. True disciples of Jesus find contentment in being like the one that they are following. Being like our teacher means we value what he values. We turn to his commitments, his priorities. A disciple simply means a learner. And as a learner to the king of kings, we seek to become like him like the king himself. And the more we become like this king, the more we find ourselves being treated the way the world treated him. The more we become like him, the more the world will treat us like the way the world treated him. The two basic general principles of discipleship, if you follow Jesus Christ as a disciple, then we will be, you will be becoming more and more like him, growing in Christ's likeness. If we follow Jesus Christ as an authentic disciple, then we will be treated like Christ, sharing in his suffering. And as disciples would say, to be counted worthy of suffering of disgrace for the name of Jesus. The more Christ-like we become, the more problem we will face because this kingdom operates with a different set of values than his kingdom. So having given these two basic principles of what it means to be like Christ, to be like the teacher, we'll look at four marks of discipleship. The first mark of discipleship from verses 26 through 33 teaches us that true disciple does not fear the world. Jesus tells us, so have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. For I tell you in the dark, say it in the light, and what you hear whisper, proclaim on the housetop, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. Therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledged me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my father who is in heaven. 
So in verses 26 to 31, we see the first mark of discipleship, that true disciples do not fear their world, and we see three reasons for why they shouldn't fear. We shouldn't fear their world, and Jesus gives us three reasons. And then at the end of the section, verse 32 and 33, we'll see how true disciples, because they don't fear the world anymore, will confess Jesus Christ. Let's look at verse 26. It says again, So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Jesus' true disciples are not to fear the world because God's going to show everything. You know the word, don't fear, that phrase repeats three times in these, this section. In verse 26, he tells them, so have no fear. Verse 28, so do not fear those who, in verse 31, wraps it up with fear not, therefore. Jesus knew that these disciples, in being informed and reminded of the persecution, they're going to be afraid. They're going to be tempted to preserve themselves instead of speaking the message that God has given them. It's hard to call people to repentance, to point out the sin that we all need to repent from and point them to Jesus Christ, to the cross. And the disciples, perhaps like us, would be tempted to fear man more than fear God. When was the last time you were afraid of speaking the truth of Jesus Christ, who Jesus is, what he has done, calling them to admission of sin, calling them to repentance, trusting the message of the gospel? Maybe you were afraid to look silly, stupid, uneducated, unsophisticated, politically incorrect. Jesus taught his disciples, and he teaches us now, don't be afraid. The first reason that Jesus gives us that we ought not to fear the world is because his true disciples will be vindicated all their deeds will be brought to light. The persecution will be exposed, and those who have sacrificed will be encouraged. There will be a day when everything will be put on the table, and God will vindicate his people. Truth will be made known. True heroes will be uncovered, and vindication to his people. Those who persecute you because of your faith in Jesus, cannot prevent you from being vindicated because that vindication is what God does when we stand before him. Jesus reminds us, he teaches his disciples, why shouldn't we fear this world? It's because he will vindicate his own. Have that eternal perspective. Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 through 14, summarizes this well. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. 
In verse 27, Jesus continues, What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, what you hear whisper, proclaim on the housetops. Throughout all this time, his disciples were taught different things, and they were told, shh, don't tell others about that truth. You're the Messiah. Shh, don't tell them yet. Now, at this point, his crucifixion and resurrection hasn't happened. So the proclamation of the gospel had to wait in its fullness. But here we see that one of the distinctive marks of Christian faith is that it has clear, open teaching. If you look at different cults and different um, teachings of different world, they emphasize on secret knowledge. Pastor Eugene talked about gnosis, Gnosticism, where people throughout history and not different now will say they have a certain secret knowledge. So if you enter our faith, you will discover that. But others outside, you know, they can't know unless they become inside. Um, Christianity is not like that. Jesus gives clear uh, teaching. And what is in the book, and only what is in the book, is what we are to teach. Nothing less and nothing more. More cults have come about because in addition to the word of God, these people, men and women, have received special revelation, and they added to this. And Jesus says, no, it's what I have taught you. Remember the Great Commission? Teach everything that I have taught you. Back in Jesus' days, houses had flat roofs, and people hung out, often slept there. If it's not too hot, like today, perhaps, and if you um, wanted to make an announcement, you would go to the edge of your roof and scream and shout. And that would be a public declaration, a public message, powerful way of communicating. And that's what Jesus is calling his disciples to do with that limited message. It's not whatever we want. It's not what we want to add to but what he has spoken through the word. Second reason for not fearing the world Jesus teaches us is because true disciple fears God who can send people to hell more than people who can't. In verse 28, Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. This is not talking about Satan. This is talking about God who has authority. And you know what Jesus is doing? He's encouraging his disciples to not fear the world with doctrine of hell. We will be tempted to compromise. We'll be tempted to fear people, man, more than God. And Jesus reminds us, don't fear people what's the worst thing they can do kill your body that's it but instead fear the one who can send both the body and soul to hell jesus talks about hell a lot and again he's encouraging the disciples do not fear this world but, but instead fear the one who has authority to send both body and soul into hell. God alone is sovereign over both this temporal body and our eternal soul. 
The point isn't that, you know, if you don't live a right life, he's going to send you to hell. The point is understanding the priority that we are to fear the one who can really determine the destiny of souls. Don't fear people. Fear God. There's an English martyr by the name of Latimer the Great. Well, Latimer, um, he was preaching uh, in the 1500s um, under King Henry. And uh, King Henry didn't really like what he was preaching. And Latimer is known to have said to himself in those days, Latimer, 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 remember that the king is here. Be careful what you say. But then he said to himself again, Latimer, 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 remember that the king of kings is here. Be careful what you don't say. They didn't like what he said. And eventually, in 1555, he was burned at the stake. During the years of Roman Empire, before Constantine normalized Christianity, for the first 300 years, Christianity went underground, like the way Christianity went underground in China, Christianity in Rome and surrounding area went underground, and people dug caverns, what today call catacombs, 600 miles worth of catacombs to worship together. Um, and 10 generations of Christians were buried in those catacombs for nearly 300 years. The supposedly estimate of 4 million Christians were buried in those catacombs. And there are many symbols there. You'd probably see a typical symbol of a fish, ichthus. But in addition to the fish, which stands for Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior, there was a different inscription that says, the word of God is not bound. The word of God is not bound, meaning we fear God too much to fear men, so we speak. The word of God is not bound. Do you wrestle with fearing mankind more than proper fear, biblical fear of God? Jesus continues by giving us a third reason for not fearing the world, because true disciple knows how valued he is by God. Jesus continues by saying, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Sparrow was the cheapest food you could buy. Um, a penny was the smallest coin, and the value of this thing would be like one-sixteenth of a denarius, so it's like not even a value of one hour wage. It's like the poorest, poor man's food. And Jesus is pointing out, you know, I, God knows when this sparrow hops around. God knows when this sparrow dies. And then he continues by saying, the very hairs of your head, they're all numbered. Some of us, we have an average number of hair, maybe 100,000. Some of us a little less. I think I'm getting a little less and less, but that's okay. God says he counts them. He numbers them. He knows. And if God knows the sparrows and knows how many hair we have or we don't have, how much more does he care for his own? Don't fear the world. The Lord God knows you. 
we might still be afraid of losing our reputation, even our job, get injured, and thus get fearful. Jesus reminds us, don't fear the world. I care for you. My eyes are on you. Be the witness I've sent you to do. Maybe one day we will go through the Heidelberg Catechism after we do the Shorter Catechism, but the first question of Heidelberg Catechism asks this, what is your only comfort in life and death? And here's the answer. That I, with my soul and body, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied all my sins, delivered me from the power of the devil, and so preserved so that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yes, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. Therefore, wherefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready henceforth to live to him. During early church history, when Nero was in power, he was known to have his uh, kind of a favorite group of personal wrestlers. These were emperor's wrestlers. They were the bravest, the strongest, kind of uh, the Olympic team of Rome. They would often come and surround the Roman amphitheater and attend the arms of the emperor. There's a famous motto, the statement that they would repeat, we the wrestlers wrestling for thee, O emperor, to win for thee the victory, and from thee the victor's crown. Again and again, we the wrestlers wrestling for thee, O emperor, to win for thee the victory, and from thee the victor's crown. They were sent out kind of like special forces and um, once they were sent out to the Gaul territory and um, to put down some rebellion. And um, this group was led by a centurion by the name of uh, Vespasian, a brilliant man. And while they were in Gaul, a bunch of these wrestlers placed their faith in Jesus and converted. When it came back to Nero, he was not pleased. And he told Vespasian that if there be any among your soldiers who cling to the faith of the, of the Christian, they must die. The decree was sent, and the message was relayed from Vespasian to the soldiers. And Vespasian asked, are any of you those who have embraced the Christian faith? And 40 of them stepped forward and saluted him. And Vespasian, he told them that he'll give them until sundown next day to deny that, or they're going to have to die. So sundown came next day, and the same 40 men stepped forward. But he couldn't kill them with his hands, so he decided to strip them naked, banish them in the middle of the lake in this freezing winter, leaving to the elements to take their lives. 
So that's what he did. They were stripped naked, sent to the middle of the lake in the frigid winter. And the 40 of them continued to repeat, 40 wrestlers wrestling for thee, O Christ, to win for thee the victory and from thee the victor's crown. And as the hour progressed, they became weaker and weaker, and the chanting became fainter and fainter until morning. There was one lonely figure who approached a fire who just couldn't withstand the cold. He came to warm himself and admitted that he had denied Christ. And the men there in faint unison continued to repeat, 39 wrestlers wrestling for thee, O Christ, to win for thee the victory and from thee the victor's crown. God must have done something in Vespasian's heart because he was moved, he was convicted. He threw off his helmet, took off his armor, ran toward the ice, shouting at the top of his voice, 40 wrestlers wrestling for thee, O Christ, to win for thee the victory and from thee the victor's crown. Jesus teaches us if we are a true disciple, we are not to fear this world. We're not to fear this world because he will vindicate his own. We're not to fear this world because we are to fear God more than people because God has the authority to send people to hell. We are not to fear this world because a true disciple knows how valued he or she is by God. And from all that, Jesus continues in verse 32, 34, how true disciples necessarily, naturally, but also must confess Jesus Christ. He says, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Public confession is an absolute must. Jesus expected his disciples to publicly confess to people that they are his with the message of Jesus Christ, with the gospel. And if they confessed in public, Jesus says, then I will also confess and stand up for you before the Father in judgment day. There's this kind of a parallel. You be faithful in speaking in the mission in the first five, verses 5 through 15, I think, and then the courtroom in verses 18 through 21, Pastor Eugene spoke of, and then if you're faithful and confess me there, then fast forward to eternity, as we see in Revelation, I will acknowledge you before the Father in the heavenly court. It's a sober call. To deny means to denounce Christ. It's a language of apostasy, saying like, you know, I'm going to cave into pressure for my self-preservation. I don't want to get beaten. I don't want to die. I'm going to deny like that wrestler did. But it's not just blatant, explicit denial of apostasy. Because you know what? 
Jesus also speaks in the Gospel of Mark that if you're ashamed of me and you don't speak up, if you just remain silent, I also will be ashamed of you before the Father on the judgment day. There is no silent Christian. That's not an option for a true disciple. See, if we get the right doctrine of God, understand who God is, what he promises, what he teaches, then we will naturally overcome fear and confess Christ for the sake of future blessedness. Confession has to be public. It's got to be genuine. And we can't deny the Lord even by silence. We are to speak with our lips and live with our lives. A small plug-in. Um, there's a good book by the title, when, God, when People Are Big and God Is Small by Ed Welch. Uh, I suggest you read it. It's a pretty short, easy read. You can buy it and read it. You can buy it and listen to it. You can borrow it from the local library for free. Just get a copy. Second mark of discipleship, verses 34 through 37, Jesus teaches that true discipleship, true disciples' supreme loyalty is to Christ over the family. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against his mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. During first century, if you are a Gentile, typically all members of the family would participate in a domestic cult, which happened daily. So, as well as ceremonies of the public cult. So if you're a daughter or a son, you're tip, and, and you convert to Christianity, you would not be taking part in the pouring of wine and libation or to the household gods or walk in a procession for the public uh, ceremonies. And this would, at minimum, infuriate the parents. What Jesus is teaching goes against our natural tendency for affection and our love and longing for harmony, especially with our family. It is probably our biggest idol in our generation. And Lord says, he came and he brings both peace and strife. You see, gospel of Jesus Christ brings peace with God, but it causes division with people who don't want that peace with God. Jesus is shocking his disciples. He wants them to know that there's not going to be this end of hostilities and the world is not going to like not oppose them, but they'll have resistance even within their family. Don't be shocked. And when you are left to choose between your family and me, Jesus is saying, if you are a true disciple, you got to choose me.
many will embrace Christ, and many did. Many were able to repent, admit their sin, and turn to Christ, but many did not. And this is still true today. There is nothing wrong with God's plan, but there is something wrong with human hearts. Hard hearts that does not naturally want to seek forgiveness or admit that we're sinful. Disciples are not to be surprised by that. J.C. Ryle's Anglican um, bishop once said, the object of Jesus' first coming was not to set up a millennial kingdom in which all would be of one mind, but to bring in the gospel, which would lead to strife and divisions. We have no right to be surprised if we see this continually fulfilled. We're not to think it's strange if the gospel rends asunder families and even estrangement between nearest relations. Jesus is warning us here to expect both individually and corporately the gospel to bring about opposition when it is embraced truly. Expect it. Know that it's going to happen. Now, he's not saying break off all relations to the, with those who do not uh, trust in Jesus. But he is saying, be warned. You will face opposition from those closest to you, from your family, from your mother, your father, from your son, daughter. And when your loyalty to them is tested, if you are my disciple, if you are a true disciple, you have to choose me. That's a true test. Ryle says again, so long as one man believes and another man remains unbelieving, so long as one is resolved to keep his sins and another is desirous to give them up, the result of the preaching of the gospel will mean division. He brings peace, but that peace divides the world between those who have embraced that peace and those who have rejected it and opposed it. John Bunyan knew all about this. He kept preaching, and he kept saying, I can't quit preaching because God has called me to preach. But people said, if you keep preaching, we'll put you in prison. But then he worried, and he thought, if I go to prison, who, who will care for my family? How can I choose my mouth? How can I close my mouth when God has called me to preach? So he committed his family to the care of the Lord, and was obedient to the call of God, and he preached. And in so doing, he was imprisoned. And during his imprisonment, he wrote the famous Pilgrim's Progress, probably next to the Bible, the most read book in the world. You should read that too. John Bunyan wrestled, and this is what he said, the parting with my wife and poor children had often been to me in this place as the pulling of the flesh from my bones. And that not only because I am somewhat too fond of these great mercies, but also because I should have often brought to my mind the many hardships, the miseries, and once that my poor family was like to meet with which I be taken from them, especially my poor blind child who lay nearer my heart than all I have besides. Oh, the thought of the hardship I thought my blind one might go under would break my heart to pieces. 
But yet, recalling myself, thought I, I must venture all with God, though I go to the quick to leave you, the living to leave you. Oh, I saw this in this condition. I was a man who was pulling down his house upon the head of his wife and children, yet I thought, I must do it, I must do it. We can't receive the gift of salvation that Jesus offers if our family means more than him. We can't receive the gift of salvation Jesus offers if our family means more than Jesus Christ. Jesus continues with the third mark of discipleship, verses 38 through 39, where true disciples follow the call to carry his cross. He says, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If you're a condemned prisoner during Roman time, you would carry a crossbeam to the execution, and the pole will already be there, and you're basically admitting that you're dead. And it's a metaphor that symbolizes death of self, the necessity of self-denial, that we must be willing to die. Because at the heart of it, true discipleship means death of self, denying of self, and willingness, ultimately, to live and die for the one who lived and died for your sins and mine. Finding life is really living in fear, holding tightly in rewards of just present life versus losing life, forsaking the rewards of this life for the future reward of heaven. There is a call to martyrdom, and he calls us to be ready to die, to die to our priorities, to die to our desires and our attitudes. It's not about self-actualization. The Bible speaks no part in that. Instead, it calls us to come and die. When the issue is between the Lord and me, whether I live or I die for him, the ultimate test of true discipleship. Finally, Jesus teaches us with the fourth mark of discipleship that a true disciple fosters rewards. Check this out. Jesus says, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he's a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he's a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Cold water. The eye of the master is on the disciples. Just as he takes notice of sparrows and hair that we have or don't have, his eyes are on the disciples who go out with the gospel of Jesus. He doesn't forget them, and he's not going to forget those who bless his disciples. 
he rewards the kindness done to those who bring the good news, and he punishes those who oppose. Now, this is an encouragement to the disciples, to the ones who are called to go out. Know that when you go out, you get a chance to bless those people when they bless you. Not only are you going to be blessed by what they provide, even you know, a cup of cold water, that's a basic hospitality back in Jesus' time in Palestinian, hot day, hot weather. Jesus saying, if you bless them, if they bless you because you're thirsty, you're blessing them also by giving them an opportunity to be rewarded at the judgment day. He's encouraging his disciples. Yeah, you will be blessed. You may be persecuted, but you're giving chances for people to bless you and be blessed by God later on. What an awesome opportunity. A prophet is, who, is one who speaks. A righteous man is one who lives. Kind of remnant, uh, reminiscent of what it means to imitate Christ, right? To grow in Christ-likeness, to be bold, but also live and representing who God is. We give chances for people to show biblical hospitality where they will get rewarded in heaven. Last week, um, I took an opportunity to talk to my oldest two kids who just came back from a youth retreat. We just went over the retreat, what they learned, um, what challenged them, what didn't make sense, clarify those things. And then at the end, I just went over the gospel with them, reminding them that God created them in his image to have an intimate, loving relationship with him. But that mankind sinned, rebelled, and in so doing, separated from this God, became enemies of God, became spiritually dead. But that God so loved the world that he gave his only son to pay the death that we should have died in our stead. And that if we were to trust and follow him, we will have eternal life. that God invites us to trust and follow him as a savior of sin and Lord, master of our lives. And I ask them, do you want to? Are you ready to trust him as your savior and Lord? They said yes. And then I asked, are you ready to go public with your faith in Jesus to your friends? at school? And there was silence. They knew who Jesus was. They knew what Jesus did on the cross, and they knew the call to follow him as master and Lord. And they knew that if Jesus really was their savior, and their master, they had to be ready to share with those around them 
who Jesus is, what he did on the cross. I told them, how silly is it to say that Jesus Christ is the most important person in your life, yet you don't tell anyone around you who's close about this Jesus. It's like saying, I have a best friend, but I'm never going to bring that best friend around, not going to tell anyone about my best friend. That best friend is just going to be at home. Actually, I had a friend who's married, but I had, I've never seen his wife. I've, he told me he was married. I don't see anything on his Facebook saying that he's married. I don't see a single picture on his Facebook that he's married. And I'm like, really? There's something wrong here. And there's something wrong if I say, if we say we trust Jesus as our Savior, and we want to follow him as our Lord, that he's the most important human being God who ever lived, who died a death that we should have died to be restored back to the Heavenly Father, yet we never speak of him. We deny him before man. God's going to, Jesus said he's going to deny us before the heavenly court. I told my kids that they were not ready to trust and follow Jesus as their Savior and Lord, and that I will pray that one day they will come to love this Jesus who died for their sins, and that they wouldn't be ashamed of him. I pray for that one day when they're not just compelled to because of guilt, but that because they understand who Jesus is, what he's done, they can't help but share with those, even if that means rejection, ridicule. Because that's what the beauty of the gospel is about. And I think that's what God calls us to. Because for those who get the gospel message, we're captured and captivated by that truth and that person, and we can't help. Yes, we are afraid, but we're compelled to be push out of our comfort zone, overcome our fear of mankind, what people would think, what people would think of us, but instead fearing God and what he would think of us, what he would do to us because of what he has already done for us on the cross. You may say that you trust Jesus as your Savior and Lord. We may say. question is, are we living in fear? Are we making our confessions to those around us? Or are we keeping silent? Are we ignoring what the Lord will say or not say on the final day when we were afraid and did not confess? He says it very clearly, then neither will I confess before the Father for you. Bible speaks about the necessity of confession with our mouth. But that's really all work of God. It's what God does as he changes us here, brings us to himself, to repentance. And we're able to make a public declaration. And that's part of what it means to become confirmed or become baptized, being ready to go public that wherever we might be, 
when God avails that opportunity to share that we be ready and tell them the reason for the hope that we have in Jesus. There's one classical individual that you probably can't help but think about when you think of denying, and that's our beloved apostle Peter, who was so adamant about, oh, I will never deny you, yet he denied thrice. But he wept bitterly. His heart was broken. But unlike Judas Iscariot, he repented, and he gave his life, ultimately laying down his life for the gospel and Jesus. Apostle Paul writes to a young Timothy in one of the letters and says this, because it's not just what disciples wrestle with. It's clearly not just something that we wrestle with. It's something that Apostle Paul um, charges Timothy with. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Some preachers with all the perhaps, with maybe not all, with some good intention, speaks of followers in the language of loyal, royalty, king's kids, and speaks as if, you know, once you convert to Christ, once you trust in Jesus, there will be an end to all problems with your life, and you will live as loyal royalty. Well, this royal king suffered persecution leading to death, and this royal king calls us to follow him as his disciple and warns us that in this life, we will experience persecution, so be ready for it. That life of true royalty is for eternity, not in this life. Get that straight. We need to get that straight. I hope and prayer is that we look to Jesus, look to his word as we grow as his disciples. Let's trust this Jesus together and let's follow him for he is worthy. Join me as we pray.